0: The National Archives podcast series From the Somme to Arras Presented by Andrew Locke This talk was recorded on the 6th of April 2017 at the National Archives, Q. The title of the talk is From Somme to Arras and we will look at where the battle stands in relation to events around it. Um, I try and avoid doing sort of cliche-laden stuff. Um, we describe it as a forgotten battle. We describe everything in the First World War as forgotten if it's not something we know a huge amount about. But um, I think overlooked, we can say. This uh, battle, the Battle of Arras, is uh, but with the possible exception of the attention that the Canadian Corps action at Vimy Ridge received. Now, there's a few reasons for this. The Battle of Arras uh, officially from the 9th uh, t- of April to the 16th of May 1917. It sits between probably the two most famous battles for the British of the First World War, namely the Battle of the Somme in the second half of 1916, and uh, the Third Battle of Ypres, uh, or Passchendaele if you like, uh, offensives from the end of July until November 1917. Now Arras was shorter than both of these offensives, and the total casualties at Arras do not reach the final numbers of the other two. But in terms of lethality, which is to say casualty rates per day... It really comfortably passes every other offensive launched by the British Army in the First World War. Only the final 100 days offensive really comes close to it. Uh, The Somme and Ypres, I mean, both these areas have more developed tourist trails than Arras. The imagery at the Somme and Passchendaele is compelling and widespread. I mean, we have uh, the famous film footage of um, Uh, the first day of the Somme with the Hawthorne Ridge mine exploding and we have any number of pictures of mud at Passchendaele. Media and education focus on these two action uh, sites and uh, sometimes the Arras battlefield is really just relegated to pointing out the Vimy Ridge Memorial um, as as you hammer down the motorway down to the Somme battlefields. Also the Battle of Arras doesn't really have an appalling day to fixate on like the 1st of July 1916 and the opening of the Somme offensive which... Yeah, people are familiar with these casualty figures now. 57,000 casualties on the first day, 19,000 dead, and very limited gains to show for it. Um, the opposite, in fact, is true for Arras. The 9th of April 1917 was the most successful day of the war for the Allies since the German offensive was halted in 1914. The historiography, which is to say, you know, books about it, um, the Battle of Arras, is fairly limited. I mean, certain aspects of the battle are covered in books on the air war, for example, uh, or the German defenders, or the Canadians at Vimy. Um, up until quite recently, there's only really one book which, in any way, kind of adequately describes the uh, the whole battle. And, um, and actually, that hasn't changed. I mean, Jonathan Nicholl's uh, "Cheerful Sacrifice." Um, which is yeah, a, a very accessible and valuable piece of work. It's actually one of my favourite um, books about the First World War. Um, it covers the first day pretty well, uh, and that has actually been added to quite recently by Jim Smithson's um, book, A uh, Taste of Success, which focuses exclusively really, on the First Battle of the Scarp, the opening phase of the Battle of Arras, uh, 9th to 14th of April. It does it cover a lot of the preamble uh, to the battle. Uh, As well, it's very good indeed. Um, These two are valuable books for anyone looking to find out more. The battle itself and how we end up with the British fighting there. I mean, essentially, we spent the first two years of the war trying to trying to work it out, and after enduring pretty staggering casualties during the first months of the war uh, and starting the use of trenches. I mean, particularly casualties on the on the French. Um, side. I mean, 1915 was used by all sides trying to find quick ways of finishing the conflict with no great success. Uh, there really isn't a huge amount to be positive about in 1915. I mean, Germany through the use of technology, i.e., poison gas and flamethrowers, and offensive action against Imperial Russia. Oh, um Things don't uh, want things to stop moving on the Western Front. Uh, Russia seems like the most likely route to victory for them. And France, through large scale offensives to break the deadlock of trench warfare and restore mobility to the conflict, and Britain, through naval power in the Eastern Mediterranean. Well, none of it works, um, uh, and it's not really the subject of this talk, so I won't go into too much detail on it, except to say that the area that we are talking about, the Arras battlefield, was fought through heavily. The French launch. Huge offensives through that area. Vimy Ridge itself was um, uh, attacked. And the French Moroccan infantry does briefly reach the eastern side of Vimy Ridge in May 1915. uh, A significant point in the Arras battlefield uh, for 1917. But they were forced to retreat because um, French artillery ran short on ammunition to support them. So 1916 opened with the Central Powers in a real position of strength. Uh, despite their casualties, the French and Russian armies are markedly less strong after their heavy casualties in 1914 and 15, but still in a good great amount of offensive action. And uh, we have a hastily and hugely expanded British army, uh, whose military performance to that day had quite simply been very poor indeed. In short, the Germans were winning the war at this stage and they had two major enemies in in the early part of 1916, France and Russia, and they were on the back foot. They also had the technological edge in the air war at the start of 1916 with the Royal Flying Corps forced into changing tactics because their their losses are mounting. Uh, They're forced to fly in closer formations uh, in response to their losses, uh, which means that it reduces the reconnaissance work they can carry on. That's their key function, of course. The Allied plan was for major offensive actions in the summer of 1916 uh, and after a period of stockpiling ammunition and further training for the British new armies, um, crucially they were going to launch an Anglo-French action on the Somme, the Russians were going to launch their uh, action in the East as well. The Germans preempted it with the strike at the French at Verdun. Now, never mind necessarily ...what the the German offensive plans were... Uh, ...or what their strategic aims were. I mean, if the German commander on the Western Front... Uh, ...Erich von Falkenhayn is, is to be believed... ...then it was to irreparably drain the French army... ...as a fighting force. But almost immediately the German plans have to start changing... ...as the size of the task at Verdun grows. Now, I mean, if that doesn't sound like good news for the Germans... ...it's certainly not good news for the French... ...as their casualties on the, in the offensive pass 100,000 by March and they're forced to divert men away from the Somme front leaving the British in the lead on the Somme, which was not the original plan at all. And all of a sudden, the Somme offensive changes from a potentially war-winning effort to break the German field army to a relief effort for the French at Verdun. Um, In July, when the Somme offensive opened, this enormously increased the rate of attrition on both sides. Uh, It became amplified for the Germans, though, as British effectiveness actually improved through the late summer and autumn, and French counter-attacks retook lost ground around Verdun as well. Now, there's a bit of debate, if you like, the, the day which was most important in the Somme offensive. From a casualties point of view, of course it can only be the first day for, for the British, certainly. Uh, 57,000 casualties, 19,000 dead, and a number of divisions blooded to the point of needing immediate withdrawal. Uh, John Bourne, I know, has argued that day two is uh, the the most important I mean it's immediate continuation of offensive action I'm not just going to stop and it's, and it's deeply, deeply significant and indicative of the British command's mindset I don't know I personally go for the 7th of July when uh, von Falkenhayn dispatches troops from the Verdun front to the Somme to, can, to contain a, a possible British breakthrough uh, to me that's, that's important uh, it also spells the end of German advances at Verdun You can look at September as well. On the Somme, the fall of the key village of Tirpval and the nearby Schwaben Redoubt were enough to set in motion a German withdrawal from the area and uh, bring about changes in defensive tactics as well, which would have serious consequences for the campaigns of 1917. So, key points to take from the battles of 1916. The Germans lose the initiative. In this year. In the major battles of 1916, so Verdun, Somme, Brussels of offensive in the east, uh, German casualties are in excess of one million men. And these are their experienced soldiers whose absence would be missed, and their replacements would necessarily not be such high quality, less experienced. Um, also, German work was well underway by the end of 1916 on this formidable defensive line to fall back to. Well, line it is siegfried Stellung, we call it the Hindenburg Line. There's actually a number of well-defended trench systems which enabled the German army to shorten its defensive line considerably and reduce the number of men they needed in the front line. Allied losses had been high. Half a million Russian soldiers became casualties in the Brusilov Offensive, uh, on top of their earlier losses, and it's becoming clear that the Russians are going to um, find it hard work to launch major further, further major offensive action. Um, although British newspapers do still publish that the Russian army will be fulfilling its obligations for the forthcoming year, I suppose big news is that the British Army is finally effective. Uh, and it's a fairly astonishing thing to think that having suffered 415, 420,000 casualties in four and a half months, your army can be relatively stronger uh, compared to your enemy than, than when it started. But it actually was. I mean, new technology and new techniques come to the British Army, come to the battlefield in this time. Um, tanks are the high-profile famous ones and uh, the perception is that you have the Hun running uh, scared from these mechanical beasts Um, the reality is they're pretty unreliable uh, at this stage and they're definitely not war winners uh, but they are a bit of help and when they work you know gotta make it to the start line first and that's not a guaranteed thing with these machines but when they do work they can uh, provide a useful bit of help uh, more reliable models would be on their way, but for Aras we would still only have Mark 1s and Mark 2s, um, so no, no great progress there. Other bits of te- technology are quite useful, um, the 106 instantaneous fuse for example uh, is going to be more effective at blasting out barbed wire, improvements in detecting German artillery through spotting the muzzle flashes uh, and using the report of the sound of the gun firing to accurately range the guns uh, is going to be useful, and another big change, new training for the British infantry. Now, the soldiers themselves are organised into sections within their platoons. It's not simply going to be an officer standing up saying, come on chaps, follow me. Um, We're going to give them different roles, four sections within a platoon and we're going to issue them tasks and weapons as well. So one section uh, could have Lewis guns, the light machine guns, one section rifle grenades, one section of bayonet men, one section of bombers uh, as well. What do you do when you approach an obstacle? Well the Lewis gunners and the rifle grenadiers can put some fire down on it and the bombers and bayonet men get to work Neutralizing that obstacle. Training pamphlets uh, come out at this time, although not everyone, not every British unit, would have the correct training and be drilled in all these new techniques in time for Arras. They would be more effective, uh, though, with this training. And the key point is that the Allies in the West would be making a serious attempt to win the war in this year, 1917. Britain's preferred battlefield would have been Belgian Flanders with Pretty extensive preparations having already been made for offensive action in that area, particularly at the Messines Ridge, but also to take back the Belgian coast, which Germany was using to send out its submarines, particularly after the uh, February the f- uh, 1st, 1917, when unrestricted U-boat warfare restarted and British shipping losses started mounting. But the French plan of attack was directed elsewhere and Britain was still taking its cues from the French at this time. Now there's always a man with a plan and uh, at this point the man is Robert Nivelle. Um, (laughs) Frenchman, clearly. The Nivelle Offensive was an attack in stages designed to break through the German lines uh, within 24 to 48 hours and the British Offensive at Arras would be the first stage designed to draw reinforcements away from the main thrust of the French attack on the des Dam ridge. Now, Nivelle himself, even an artillery officer who'd fairly shot to fame, leading counter offensives at Verdun. And he was a persuasive and charismatic man, too. I mean, thanks to his fluent English, he uh, convinced politicians on both sides of the channel that his plan was the right one, fairly seducing uh, our new Prime Minister, David Lloyd George with his plan. Uh, less convinced but still cooperative was uh, Douglas Hay, commander of the BEF and just over a year into the job as commander of the largest army Britain had ever produced, has ever produced and uh, and sent overseas. He was among other things fairly inarticulate uh, and not quite the politically minded that uh, man that Nivelle was. After the Calais conference in February 1917 he was almost Placed directly under French command as a result Uh, He was among other things connected uh, though Haig And um, there was no ready replacement for him And uh, so this didn't happen exactly But Haig had already agreed to take part in Nivelle's action uh, In the letter and spirit of Nivelle's plan And um, other figures around Haig Key leaders, uh, General Edmund Allenby Uh, GOC Third Army. Uh, Like Haig, a cavalry officer who would go on to be more famous for his actions in Palestine uh, later in the war. But uh, for now, he's the general in command of British Third Army who would be taking on the bulk of the offensive action at Arras. And uh, Julian Bing, uh, another cavalry officer, Uh, he had been uh, in command of the Canadian Corps, uh, part of British First Army since. June 1916 uh, he'd made his money training and selling polo ponies uh, if you're interested uh, before serving in South Africa and his, his First World War service had already taken him to the Western Front then to Gallipoli then on to the Suez and then back to the Western Front um, working with the commander of First Army uh, Henry Horne and um, Canadian Major General Arthur Curry, uh, they would plan the assault on Vimy Ridge and you have Hubert Goff. Uh, as well, GFC 5th Army, um, whose army had been on the advance already, uh, occupying areas that the Germans had fallen back from. What about the Germans? Uh, well, of course, they never do what you want them to do. Uh, what Nivelle and Hagen, and the others, really wanted the Germans to do was sit there and do nothing, uh, of course, and let the Allies bring about their. Doom and demise. Um, In some respects, they do contribute to their own downfall during this period by declaring unrestricted U boat warfare, which directly contributes to bringing the United States into the war. But on the Western Front, the Germans begin their retreat to the Hindenburg Line from February of 1917. Now, I don't quite like the word retreat uh, for this. It was a soundly planned and conducted strategic withdrawal, and it shortened the front by about 25 miles freed up 14 German divisions to be used elsewhere or to react to threats and potential breakthrough. Uh, they also modified their style of defence, moving away from statically defending strong points, uh, halten was zu halten ist, um, and going to an outpost uh, line style of defence with a thinly held front, then to a more mobile, elastic defence holding the bulk of their strength in reserve, uh, again, behind a relatively lightly held outpost line with machine guns, these reserve troops, Eingreif uh, Divisionen, um, Eingreif doesn't translate all that well in English, I mean, intervention divisions, I mean, you just, we can call them counter-attack divisions, possibly. They stay out of the way of the worst of the artillery bombardment, and then counter-attack at the most opportune moment, is essentially their job. Uh, and these are all good plans to counter what is... Increasingly becoming an overwhelming Allied superiority in terms of men and war material. Um, another consequence of the German withdrawal in February and March is that actually Nivelle's plan is out of date. Uh, much of the planning to that point had been to deal specifically with the area from which the Germans had now fallen back. Um, in occupying the area left by the Germans, the Allies took up positions which were overlooked by the new. New German positions uh, significantly reducing the chances of achieving any kind of surprise. For Arras specifically, though, surprise, well, it wasn't going to be possible uh, or necessarily wanted. Our main objective with Arras, don't forget, is to is not so much to break through the German lines but to draw the Germans into the area en masse and away from the Chimande Dam where, where the French are trying to break through. The question for the British at Arras was always going to be whether they could s- construct an attack powerful enough to scare the German army into moving its reserves into the Arras area enabling the French to break through to the south, which remained the plan in spite of the change in situation. Now, artillery would be a key part of the plan at Arras as it was in all of these major offensives. The preliminary bombardment had an essential role in destroying enemy defensive positions, breaking barbed wire, subduing or destroying enemy artillery, and of course, killing the defenders. These aims Manifestly had not been achieved across large parts of the Somme battlefield the year before, with dire co- consequences for the assaulting troops on the on the first of July 1916. The artillery plan for Arras and Vimy would be different. For starters, the bombardment would be heavier, certainly, and uh, in the case of Vimy Ridge as well, longer. Two weeks of targeting strong points followed by an enormously intensified five days leading into the opening of the battle itself. This last five days was known by the German defenders who lived through it as the week of suffering. And it wasn't just high explosive shells and, uh, and our new 106 fuse causing it, um, largely because uh, not everyone had the 106 fuse, hadn't made it to field artillery uh, yet. Uh, although the volume of artillery was quite firing. The number of artillery pieces available to Allenby and Bing was almost double uh, Rawlinson and 4th Army had for the Somme less than a year earlier for for a similar length of front. 18-pounders made up half the artillery force, uh, but the increase in the number of heavy guns would be extremely telling. On the morning of the attack, uh, 960 heavies with high-quality fuses at ass versus 400 heavies with poorly-fused shells on the Somme. Uh, we, we, st- we still ballpark that um, about one shell in three failed to explode on the Somme, uh, and so we have a huge increase in destructive power here during the daytimes. High explosive would be used against visible targets and strong points. During night times, harassing shrapnel fire and machine gun barrages uh, as well, employed against known German supply routes to hinder the resupply, reinforcement and relief of German units at the front. Now thanks to the work of the air services and the first field survey company, actually 86% of German artillery batteries uh, were identified and, and could come under fire. The air services during this period really do deserve a special mention. The Royal Flying Corps endured its worst month of the war in April 1917 with 256 aircraft being shot down in the 30 days as they desperately tried to provide the ground troops with the reconnaissance and images that they need in spite of the filthy weather and definite technological inferiority too adding to the misery of the defenders was another new piece of technology the Libens projector now these have been used experimentally uh, on the Somme Uh, they start out like a large Molotov cocktail uh, lobbing a canister of fuel over like a petrol bomb they got modified to Fire poison gas and the attacking force at Arras had amassed 2,000 of them to contribute to the defenders' woe. Um, there were 400 Germans in the Saint Laurent Blangy area of, of Arras that we know of killed by gas fired by Livens projectors uh, sinking down into their dugouts. Um, the Livens projector, uh, it was, it's not to be confused with the Stokes mortar, um, which is Useful as well and was used to augment the uh, artillery bombardment and the wire cutting. Fires a projectile which looks a bit like an exhaust pipe, uh, actually. Um, And the attack itself initially planned for Sunday, the 8th of April. Trouble was the French weren't going to be ready uh, for that point, and the weather was horrendous as well freezing cold and frequent falls of snow and sleet, uh, which is bad news for attackers and defenders. But in the region of 24,000 men were safe from the worst of the weather and from the effects of German artillery as they were sheltering in the limestone quarries under the city. Um, For anyone who's not been to Arras and, uh, and the carrier Wellington or the Wellington Quarries. Well, it's worth going over there just for that. It's a superb set of mind out galleries uh, named by the Tunnelers from New Zealand who linked the old quarries together and hollowed out larger rooms for the waiting assault troops. I, mean, I personally recommend it. Um, there's uh, a great connection with, with where I'm from, uh, Suffolk, um, as the, the part that you, you visit as part of the experience there that's set up um, happens to be the part where 2nd Battalion of the Suffolk Uh, Regiment waited before going into action on Z-Day. You do get to see the site of the Battalion HQ, uh, the place underground where they held their Easter Sunday service before going into action, and um, a a couple of bits of graffiti by men of the Second Suffolks as well. It's really good. Um, In view of the weather and the fact that the French preparations were taking longer than planned, Haig postponed the attack to Easter Monday, the 9th of April. Uh, The soldiers were told that it was to preserve the sanctity of Easter. Mm. Uh, it's not particularly plausible, <laughs> and probably got a chuckle. It wasn't a life of luxury in the quarries, but it did beat being on the surface, and it meant that on the morning of the attack, these men would be relatively fresh, and whilst the Germans opposite will have endured the elements, the gas, and the artillery, further assistance was to be rendered to the infantry ...by the artillery in the form of a creeping barrage. Now, rather than the guns simply stopping, not firing anymore... um, ...and the infantry advancing into the area that's shot up... The fire would move forward with the troops in behind, as close as they dared to to the advancing bombardment. And when employed correctly, i.e. moving swiftly enough to make sure the requisite lines were taken, not so quickly that the advancing soldiers could could actually keep up, and crucially heavy enough so that the wire was broken and defenders were forced to stay in their dugouts, this is a superb tool, Uh, and it takes a lot of planning. A lot of good quality, accurate guns and a lot of shells to create an effective creeping barrage. But the one launched from 5.30am on the 9th of April 1917 was exactly that. The infantry have to know precisely when each advance is about to be made. And a little piece of trivia, wristwatches overtake pocket watches in popularity at this time. uh, So that officers can check the time of the barrage lifts nice and conveniently. Um, And the first gun to fire was the signal gun at Mont Saint-Éloi, 5.30, and then the rest of the artillery opens up, sending shells of all calibres over the infantry who'd been waiting in, in no man's land for the start of the action. Charges planted at some tunnel entrances exploded, opening the tunnels up, and sometimes they're just a few yards in front of the German front lines, and these these largely fresh-fit and well-fed men attacked directly out from underground. In many cases, such as Vimy. The first defenders encountered were really in no grade to do anything other than surrender. Uh, The initial advance, though, was not without problems. Uh, A sergeant in the Royal Scots recorded that the first salvo of fire from the British guns actually fell behind him, uh, which is not ideal. Um, And the terrain and weather made the advance tricky. There was icy drizzle, plenty of holes filled with freezing cold water... Uh, to try and pick a way through. And the Germans don't stay quiet for long either. The German artillery batteries that had gone undestroyed were swiftly in action. Signal flares up and down the uh, line calling for firepower. Machine guns that survived the bombardment also opening up. In the main though, the British artillery was accurate, heavy and gave the advancing infantry enough cover to seize Vigneridge, Saint-Laurent-Blangy and Tualaim off and to push out to the German position of the one called First She line, and um, our second battalion of the Suffolks... which I mentioned, were some of these first soldiers to get into the battle, coming out of the quarries, and uh, attacking the uh, German trenches in Tillua. Uh, they did this with complete success, uh, achieved all their objectives, uh, sustaining a relatively light one hundred and two casualties from their battalion: uh, nineteen killed, seventy-one wounded, twelve missing. Um, Other units leapfrogging through, uh, 7th Battalion of the Suffolks uh, passing through the 7th East Surreys, and continue to advance uh, as a second wave. Uh, You have the ambitious leapfrog of a whole division, um, 4th Division leapfrog through 9th Division press on to Fompou and uh, the Hyderabad Redoubt and beyond and that's a gain of three and a half miles uh, in fact. another position though, the railway triangle that had been a tough nut to crack Uh, this is one of these examples of how far the British army had come though in a a relatively short space of time and how quickly they were learning. The Germans had halted the assaulting 15th uh, division men with heavy fire from a fortified trench uh, at the railway embankment um, in a move which wouldn't have happened on the first day of the Somme because it wasn't part of the plan and we stick to the plan the divisional commander halted his uh, barrage, the creeping barrage, called his artillery commander, got him to stop and bring the guns back um, to uh, hammer the eastern embankment of the railway triangle. Uh, it's, not, it's not the done thing because these these barrages are strictly timetabled, but it was the right move. Didn't completely eliminate the danger though, so the arrival of a, of a tank uh, along the railway was very welcome indeed. Um, Tank 788 Lusitania um, under the command of Second Lieutenant uh, Chaz Weber. It's on the front of Jim Smithson's. Uh, books, nice photo. Um, They had an eventful morning. Uh, they just about made the start point by uh, 4am in spite of getting stuck in the mud, Um, but they'd had to stop when they worked out. They'd lost some bolts on the way there, uh, which meant that something called an axle connecting shaft would have sheared off if they'd tried to go anywhere. Uh, Weber had one of his crew uh, run back to the Citadel to find some bolts. He got back about 8.30 and by half past nine, Lusitania was back in action. Now, The attack was gone by this stage, uh, and so they crossed over the lines easily enough, uh, progress having already been made by the infantry, trundled forward extremely slowly. They had to stop every so often to let the engine cool down, but by noon they'd caught up with it. Moved up the railway on the southern side, uh, put some fire on a machine gun post a little to the north, and then they ran out of fuel, uh, much to the frustration of the crew and the infantry around them. They managed to get the tank filled up, they advanced to the second uh, objective line, the blue line, uh, with a brigade of infantry uh, supporting, battering away with the tank's cannon, um, squashing anything hostile that they could. And uh, and then late in the afternoon, German artillery started dropping nearby. Uh, tanks, there are a lot of things, but they're not shell-proof. Weber attempted to take the Lusitania back towards Arras. They tried to get up a slope, couldn't the tank cut out. The crew cut out as well at this point. Uh, apparently got some got some sleep in the stalled tank. After the engine had cooled down a bit, the crew woke again. They went back into action again until they were almost out of ammunition when the, the tank broke down properly. Uh, the the crew left it and when they came back they found it had been shelled so that it was unusable. Um But chaos and mayhem, and that's about as good a story about a tank as you'll get in the First World War. Many of the other stories were were less happy with the tanks. Tanks attacking further to the south, uh, Number 8 Company, C Battalion, um, for example, Tanks ditched, tank track broken, tank went to assistant of broken tank became ditched, shell direct hit, ditched, ditched on string trench, hit by trench mortar, set on fire, ditched, ditched, Um, yeah, not not uniformly successful these tanks. Um, Shouldn't be too hard on the attackers though. Difficult jobs and great gains made uh, elsewhere too. The the German counterattack divisions. For whatever reason, they been held too far back. Uh, probably the force of the British artillery uh, forced them back. And the 3rd Army had taken over 8,000 Germans prisoner and captured 152 guns, which by any measure is a successful day's work, made possible by, well, enormous amounts of resources, but well-trained men and careful planning as well. What happens next? Well... Some units have it pretty easy in terms of working out what to do next because they still need to achieve their day one objectives. Others, fourth and ninth divisions, for example, having achieved all their day one targets, well, they're rather in the blue uh, because they don't have a clear plan of what to do next. And what we discover in the days that follow is that executing a set piece of after months of planning is one thing. Turning that into a mobile campaign and genuinely breaking through is something quite different and particularly when the second, third and fourth days of the offensive see the heavier snowfall of the winter. Um, Day 2 is Tuesday the 10th of April and Hague and Allenby make the mistake on this day of thinking that they are pursuing a defeated enemy and that risks were to be taken. Uh, And in very simple terms that means attacks going in without proper artillery support and with only very limited planning. And as it turned out they were not pursuing a defeated enemy and even if they were the pursuit would have been extremely difficult trying to move... Guns and men across broken ground through the snow. Uh, Cavalry were were brought up but struggled to get into position uh, in time for an attack on the 10th of April, and so were withdrawn uh, straight away. And the fact was that the primary objective of the battle to draw German reserves into the Arras area had been achieved superbly well. Um, They were coming. Uh, Reserves, fresh reserves with fresh artillery um, were on their way. And so subsequent offensive actions... Which would be hastily organised, insufficiently supported, and going up against these fresh German units—well, certainly fresher than the uh, lads that they've been shooting at for the five days prior to the 9th of April—it um, would be more difficult. And and the first attempts to move the guns up and put fire onto the new German front lines were unsuccessful. It's too difficult to get sufficient numbers of guns and their ammunition. Forward. I mean, the examples, uh, there's not too much in the artillery diaries, but you get hints of it in the engineers' diaries, 9th Division. Um, engineers lament that the Germans have taken all the pavé off the roads uh, the the cobbles to line their dugouts uh, in the Blangy area when they're trying to move their guns through the area Uh, field artillery can get themselves into position for the morning of the 11th to support the infantry but they're unregistered and their bearing pickets have been destroyed uh, and there's some map features which are inaccurate Uh, for example Greenland Hill Um, the the summit is incorrectly positioned on, on the maps Um, for the attack at Ruhr Chemical Works on the station on the 11th there's no artillery observer makes it into the necessary forward position and nobody had established that the chemical works were held strongly with a network of caves underneath the shelter and so when the artillery barrage um, started and 2nd Battalion of the Seaforth Highlanders and 1st Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers attacked straight into this very well observed from Greenland Hill and well defended position they supported by the Household Battalion and the 1st Royal Warwick's. 1,600 or so men go into action and 1,000 become casualties to the machine gun fire from the chemical works. Ruhr wouldn't fall for a month um, after many batterings uh, from the artillery. It looked quite different by that stage too. The attack that actually took Ruhr, chemical works initially, and then the village afterwards, was actually a well-put-together um, thing. It's after um the the sort of the offensive action has died down at Arras it is well thought out um I mention that in a in a moment, but back to the difficulties first of all. Another example of the problems uh, is the attack made out of monchy Monchy Preux on the fourteenth of April. Now Monchy had fallen on the eleventh in in what was really the last piece of genuine good news. Um, in in the Battle of Arras, but even that was tainted by the damage done to the cavalry units that had been sent into the village. Uh, I mean, on the 14th, what you have is the first battalion of uh, the Newfoundland Regiment and the first battalion of the Essex Regiment were sent out to capture Infantry Hill to the east of Monchi. Uh These two units have a fairly wretched history of uh, attacking side by side, and anyone who's been to Newfoundland Park uh, on the Somme knows that. Uh, The story of the the Newfoundlanders on that day, and they were supposed to have the Essex uh, Regiment alongside them, um, but the the Newfoundlanders really do come uh, unstuck and are effectively destroyed as a battalion. Actually, they fare scarcely any better at Arras. Um, They move into the German outpost line uh, towards Infantry Hill. Um, very little resistance at that point. Uh, they get to their objectives and then they were surrounded, cut off and destroyed by the German counter-attacks. Now, if the Germans had known that Monchi was virtually defenceless at that point, then they could potentially have pressed on. This is one of these uh, small benefits of having a lot of long-range artillery firing away. Their main supply station for ammunition had been destroyed by British long-range artillery and so they were short on ammunition Anyway, um, but actually the only defenders at Monchy at this point were uh, the Battalion HQ for the Newfoundlanders. So Lieutenant Colonel Forbes Robertson uh, took 20 or so men to the edge of the village uh, and were able to put down some rifle fire, fire which was enough to uh, stop the Germans pressing on. Um, by the 23rd of April, after more intense localised fighting at Gavrel and Gemap and unsuccessfully again at Ruhr, Haig and Allenby were ho- really hoping for some good news from their French allies, but there was no breakthrough. The French offensive uh, on the des Dam opened on the 16th and gained some ground, uh, took thousands of prisoners and captured hundreds of guns as well, but at extremely heavy cost, which heaped on the already heavy losses from the previous, well almost three years, caused widespread refusals to resume offensive action and from the 25th of April when the French army, well they've suffered in the region of 120,000 casualties including 32,000 dead by this point, the French government set in motion plans to remove uh, Nivelle. Uh, By the start of May the French offensives had been stopped altogether, desertion rates were high and the British were forced to accept that there would be no immediate French support. Moreover the Flanders offensive which they had planned wasn't quite ready to go yet Um, and so in order to hold the German army um, in one position away from Flanders they were going to have to keep going at Arras and try and resume this stalled offensive On the 28th it was back into action at Ruhr, uh, again in dense fog which made artillery observation impossible and it was a complete disaster. Uh, You have inexperienced replacement troops, you have battalions, some of them down at one-fifth strength uh, meeting German reserves. Um, Only really the capture of Arleur uh, gave any positive news from the day at all. The last major action was on the 3rd of May. Uh, and again, little time made for preparations. Actually, you have three armies involved in this one. Um, first, third, and fifth all have their their own little challenges to work with, and uh, the the plan becomes muddled. What we have is a as a start time that doesn't really uh, work for anything. Fifth Army urgently want to attack at night. Uh, they have a lot of flat ground uh, ahead of them. There's not too much cover for them, but. Uh, Third Army have a lot of broken ground and some very difficult terrain to try and negotiate, and so they really need to see what they're doing. Both Allenby and Goff make their cases, uh, and in the end, uh, a time of half an hour before sunrise uh, was set. Now, this is really neither here nor there. Uh, It means that the Third Army, guys who need daylight, don't have it. Uh, It means that the 5th Army guys who need darkness well, it's going to be light in half an hour anyway so they don't have much time uh, to work with, not enough time certainly. And it gets worse actually because the moon was setting um, behind the soldiers so they were silhouetted, the Germans could see them, they couldn't see what was in front of them and um, and unsurprisingly it doesn't work. Uh, It it descended into shambles. Uh, A a number of different battalions uh, report hearing the word retire being shouted out. Now, retire was not a command in the British Army uh, and it had been used before. I mean, 7th Battalion, the Seaforth, recorded it in their diary as early as March. Um, the Germans have been using this, shouting out retire. But it seems to cause confusion on the 3rd of May. Hundreds of men returned to their start lines. Officially, the Battle of Arras ended on the 17th of May, but to uh, all intents and purposes, it's it's done by the 4th. Smaller attacks went in for the next two weeks. Ruhr fell on the 11th of May, and this attack was good, um, actually. The, the, the main focus has shifted now. Um, we're not going to launch any major new attacks and so smaller scale actions local commanders thinking about the tactical challenges ahead of them get given a bit more leeway and so the the attack that fourth division create to take the chemical works uh, initially is well some unusual in some ways uh, firstly they pick an unusual start time the zero is going to be 7 p.m. Um, that means forming up in daylight now when they've done that before they've been observed uh, one of the problems for um, the fourth division again uh, on the 11th of April the Seaforths, um and the Royal Irish they're observed by a German aircraft buzzing over now if they're going to form up in daylight again then they need to be careful about how they do it and they are they uh, deepen their trenches Um, they cut funk holes in the trenches to hide men inside and they bring extra Lewis guns uh, into the front line as well so that if a German aircraft does fly over uh, they can put a lot of fire into them and hopefully shoot them down deception as well is going to be part of it Uh, on the 8th of May they fire a creeping barrage uh, over the area that they're going to to attack and then just don't attack Uh, sow the seeds of doubt in the defenders Uh, on the day of the attack itself When the artillery fire up, up, they fire a smoke barrage on the neighbouring division, 12th division's front. So that when the German artillery fires up, uh, A, they're a bit slow to get going, and B, they fire at where they think the attack's going in, which is where all this smoke is, and it's not at all. Another problem that they'd had in attacking the chemical works in that area was uh, the cellars were interconnected linked up and so Germans would pop out of rooms where they hadn't been before so extra moppers up uh, are brought in and posted on doorways for hours after the action they have very limited objectives they're not going to press on to a third or a second or third uh, objectives it really is just this challenge just the chemical works that they're going to take out and they've also worked out that bringing Machine gunners right up into the front line to defeat a counter-attack is a good idea. Not that they're expecting one because of the late start time. Uh, it's going to get dark uh, relatively soon. Uh, that's the 7pm start time for you. Um, They're going to be helped by their artillery. Uh, They're going to drop a protective barrage uh, around them once they've taken their objectives. And they're also hit upon the idea that bringing up unarmed machine gunners uh, is a good idea because they always find German machine guns and lots of ammunition around there. Save ourselves some effort of bringing up Vickers guns and let's use captured German machine guns uh, against the enemy. All of it works. Now, the Germans did counterattack. as it happens. Uh, 4th Division were relieved by 51st Highland Division. Uh, the Highlanders are hard fighters, well-led hard fighters, and they retake uh, the chemical works, and they took the village um, as well. Um, Bulko, taken on the 17th. Uh, by the end of the campaign, 39 days in, in length, British casualties uh, numbered 159,000. It um, doesn't match the numbers of the longer campaigns, the Somme and, and Third Ypres, but in terms of casualty rates, in terms of lethality, none really get near to Arras. 159,000 casualties in 39 days, daily rate of 4,076 Casualties. Compare that to the Somme, 141 days, yeah, 415,000 casualties. It's a daily rate of 2,943. Third 244,000 casualties in 105 days. So that's 2,323, the, the lowest uh, of these ones. As I said before, only the final offence of the last 100 days really comes close uh, 350,000 in 96 days. Daily rate 3,645. Um, so, for that intensity alone, it really does make this campaign one which ought to be better remembered and studied further. Uh, and in terms of remembrance of the battle site, our uh, connections with the battlefield, there's a few places which are worth uh, looking and visiting. I know I mentioned the Wellington Quarries, they're great, they're well worth Uh, A look. Um, I personally am a battlefield guide, and I'll always say it's impossible to understand the battle without getting to uh, the ground. Uh, Places like the Arras Memorial, 35,000 names of the missing uh, from that area. The Flying Services Memorial, uh, as well, 989. They're always worth remembering the the Flying Services flying in outdated machines, um, doing their best to help the men on the ground. I mean, the Vimy Ridge Memorial uh, is beautiful. Uh, Eleven thousand one hundred and sixty-one names on it, which actually sometimes people forget to look at this. Uh, they're, they're rather struck by the beauty of the monument and the view over the plain to the east. There, it is a stunning memorial and uh, one to be visited. As is the French site, uh, the cemetery at ablin Saint Nazaire, the Notre Dame de Lorette uh, basilica uh, up on the hill, a cemetery with forty thousand. Um, burials, some in ossuaries um, the French are important um, I always consider that the French, whenever you see a French casualty from 1914, 15 or 16 um, these are men who died buying time for the British army to get its act together and, and become effective uh, and so their sacrifice is important and it's a it's a stunning sight to visit as well, uh, Notre-Dame de Lorette. and uh, let's absolutely not forget the Germans uh, either, their colossal cemetery at Neuville-sur-Varese, saint vas 44,833 uh, Germans buried in this cemetery. It's really very close to these other uh, memorials and a visit to these sites wouldn't be complete without considering them either. And, and briefly to sum up then what the impact of, of Arras was, it's billed as a, as a milestone on the road to real effectiveness. Uh, which was not far away. Actually, it's a continuation of that process, getting on that road to effectiveness. And these these attacks that go in 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 May, where all the the lessons have been taken and the the ground has been studied, do show that. I mean, Hague's army had shown that they could execute a well-planned set piece assault, as they had done on the 9th of April, and they did it again on the 7th of June, and they effectively blew the top off Messines Ridge with 19 huge mines and an artillery barrage, which was virtually atomic in its magnitude, It showed Haig and the British Army commanders that continuing the offensive with sound artillery planning and realistic objectives is essential. Uh, And that was borne out in the bite-and-hold tactics throughout autumn of 1917, although fairly inexplicably forgotten in the final push for Passchendaele Village. Uh, The continued offensive at Arras did hold the German army in that area and it did provide relief ...for a French army in real need of it after three years of brutal conflict and enormous loss. Uh, the French would be mounting smaller offensive actions by the end of the year after much morale restoration. Um, Allenby himself, he was re- relieved of the command of the Third Army and sent out to Palestine to command the British forces there. At first he was devastated, but actually he went on to do superbly well, capturing Jerusalem, Damascus, the Holy Land... Um, and the Arras battlefield. It was all fought over again, uh, first during the uh, German Spring offensive and then over the final drive to victory. And it's a victory that's made possible um, by the process of learning and unfortunately the attritional actions of 1916 and 17 as well. This podcast is copyright, the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.